When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everyone. Before we start the show, just want to warn you that there are curse words in today's episode. Okay, here's the show. There's this story we've been watching unfold in Australia. We've almost done a show about it several times. So this story's been ongoing for a better part of a year and even a little bit longer. That's James Hennessy, the editor of Business Insider Australia. Back in April... Australia started working on a law to make Facebook and Google pay news publishers if they wanted to link to their content. And it was one of those things where, you know, the government talks about doing something, fighting big tech, taxing big tech, doing something like that, and then nothing really comes of it. But over the past few months, the law gained steam. The tech companies dug in against it and threatened to pull out of Australia entirely. If this version of the code were to become law... It would give us no real choice but to stop making Google Search available in Australia. Then last week, Facebook banned news from its platform in Australia, angering the Prime Minister. The idea of shutting down the sort of sites they did yesterday as some sort of threat, well, I know how Australians react to that, and uh, I thought that was a, uh, not a good move on their part. It's been a fascinating high-tech and high-stakes game of chicken. Australia being a relatively small market, we don't normally throw our weight around, um, especially in this kind of space. But this time they did, and passed the law this week. Today on the show, is Australia's new law a model to fund journalism and stand up to big tech around the world? Or does it undermine the very principles of the internet? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase, Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. The whole debate about this new Australian law starts with the news media, which has been losing money pretty much everywhere. I wonder if you could help set the table a little bit about what the media ecosystem looks like in Australia. Sure. The state of the media ecosystem in Australia is actually really integral to the story more broadly, because Australia is incredibly consolidated in terms of its media. So the big ones are Nine and News Corp. Founded by Rupert Murdoch. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Nine and News, 
nine owns TV stations and newspapers and radio stations. And then there are a number of kind of medium-sized independent publishers. And then obviously there's obviously a number of very small independent producers uh, and publishers. Here in the, the U.S. where I am, local news has just been decimated over the past decade, really probably the past 25 years. How is it fared in Australia? Uh, same deal. Uh, exactly the same situation. Local newspapers, over the especially over the past decade, have folded en masse. Where they do exist, do they often exist as largely digital-only offerings? But also a lot of them are also owned by some of the larger companies as well. Like media all over the world, Australian news outlets have a complicated relationship with Facebook and Google. Let's say you want to find out more about Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. You Google that and you get links to Australian news sources. Or maybe you see it on Facebook's newsfeed and click. Google and Facebook say, OK, media companies, we sent readers your way. You should thank us. The media organizations, though, say, hey, we created the content that you were linking to. We should get some money for that content especially since the advertising around it is really lucrative and most of it is now going to you, big tech. This tension is where the Australian fight began. So a little more than a year ago, the government starts working on something called the News Media Bargaining Code. How would you describe in brief what it does? What it does is it outlines a structure for understanding how news media businesses and Facebook and Google actually do business together. And it centered on this, what some might argue is a fairly flawed understanding of how the internet works, it centers around the display of links. If you display links to Australian publishers on your services, the news media companies and Facebook and Google have to come to an agreement about what the payment should be for displaying those links. This all might sound reasonable from the outside, but things got hung up very quickly on how the money part would work. That's because the code uses something called baseball arbitration. If you're an avid sports fan, you might be familiar with it. It means each side proposes a number, and an arbiter picks one. No negotiation. Facebook or Google could be stuck paying a lot of money to some Australian newspaper. And Facebook and Google find that unacceptable. Sure, they're facing all kinds of regulation all around the world, happy to throw money at the problem to make it go away. But the idea of being stuck in an arbitration with a country, you know, in the, the South Pacific, where any number could maybe come out of it, is not something that they're willing to accept. Why do they find that so unacceptable? After all, these are rich companies. They have a lot of cash and presumably could just throw some money at this problem to make it go away. They probably don't care greatly about the Australian market all that much, but they know that regulators around the world are looking at Australia and looking at how this plays out. So yes, they could feasibly, in a vacuum, whether having an arbitration um, forced upon them in Australia, they wouldn't want that same situation forced on them in the EU and every constituent EU country and all over the world. Then, then that becomes an existential threat. Let's talk through how this unfolded a little bit. We've thought about doing this story multiple times over the past few months, and each time it would have been slightly different. One version was Google is pulling search out of Australia. Another was Facebook is banning newsfeed in Australia. It, it felt like a high-stakes game of chicken, kind of. What were the different companies' strategies? 
So it's kind of interesting that it has ended up as a huge argument between Facebook and Australia because for most of the, the life of this issue, Google really aggressively pursued a, basically a PR campaign speaking to their users, talking about what basically the, the code was going to change how the internet fundamentally functioned. Well, what would you see if you, if you Googled something, you actually saw a little pop-up, right? Yeah, certainly in Australia, every time you're on a Google service, there was a, a large pop-up there basically saying the Australian government is passing laws that are going to change fundamentally change the way that you use Google services uh, and may force us to withdraw services. They also were doing ads which were spearheaded by um, uh, some lo- local uh, comedy talent, actually. It was quite interesting watching them try to land on a message that translated um, and that regular people might be able to understand. So they kind of went through a a lot of analogies about how this worked. They had a really confusing one about a bus. So this bus we're on picks up people at their homes and drops them off at restaurants all across town. Stopping somewhere and the businesses that it stopped at had to pay the bus. Under a new law being drafted, the bus driver would need to pay the restaurants for delivering those customers to their doorstep. Sounds weird, huh? But that's not all. As the months wore on, it became clear that the code would pass. Google dropped the bus analogies and went with direct threats. But the threats didn't work. So eventually they decided to negotiate. Because Google actually needs news links. Imagine search results without news. That's pretty weird, right? Facebook, on the other hand, went with a very different strategy. They hit the nuclear button. Last Thursday, they got rid of news content in Australia. The pulling of news was a complete surprise. They basically just announced that they were going to do it. And then next thing you know, all the news publishers in Australia saw that nobody could access their pages on Facebook. What could you see when that happened if you went on a Facebook feed? If you went onto a Facebook feed of one of the affected publications, you could see all their profile information, but the actual feed was was not there. And Australian users also could not see news from international publications as well. Was it chaos? It was definitely a a shock. And certainly for a lot of publishers, which are more reliant on Facebook, I mean, all of a sudden they were, you know, staring into a void. Like, who knows how long this was going to last? Am I going to be able to run my news business? So it was a big shock in, in that respect. But pretty soon after the conversation turned to all the pages that were pulled that were not news. So the part where Facebook overplayed their hand a little bit was they also pulled a lot of non-news pages as well. Places like the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, which is our our weather service. They also pulled a lot of the the state health bodies. Um, And basically, Facebook then came out afterwards and said, look, we're very sorry, that shouldn't have happened. But we were also taking a really expansive reading of what the code meant. I think that did kind of amplify a little bit of anger here in Australia, because obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. People, People do get a lot of information from their state health bodies about vaccines and all sorts of things. Facebook eventually reached a deal with the government, what the prime minister in an international dad joke called refriended. The reason that Facebook has now news back for Australian publishers is they agreed to some amendments with the government to the code. The main ones is that it gives uh, Facebook and Google more time to make deals with publishers. And two, it reiterates that the government will take into account what deals these um tech giants have made with publishers before deciding whether the code applies to them at all. In short, what that means is if you make some deals and everybody's happy, 
the code won't apply to anymore. It'll kind of just be a law that sits in a dusty drawer somewhere applying to no one until we decide that maybe it does apply to someone. We'll be right back. It was perhaps predictable that the tech companies would oppose Australia's code. What's more surprising is how some groups that seem like natural proponents of the code actually objected to it. That includes smaller news organizations who might depend on traffic from Facebook or Google. There are a bunch of different arguments that have been made for and against the code. I want to look at some of the arguments against it. One argument is that this maybe won't help journalism because the the smaller outlets might depend on being found on Google or Facebook or that they're sort of non-entities in this back and forth. Walk me through that thinking. Yeah, and I think that's a really, really valid argument against. Um, so the code pretty explicitly applies to organizations that have $150,000 a year of turnover. Obviously, that does eliminate a lot of really small publishers that don't make that kind of money. They're, in de- they're totally independent and they may use social media or, to, or Facebook or Google or whatever to, to get their message out. And the independent publishers are now raising the concern that, look, now that it seems that deals are being struck, Facebook and Google are coming to the table, making deals with these big publishers, the little guys have now been completely forgotten. Facebook is not agitating to make deals with local newspapers or anything like that right now. They are going for the, the big boys, so to speak. If I were an independent publisher, I'd be concerned that I'm, that I'm being left behind, absolutely. There are the arguments about journalism, and then there is this sort of philosophical debate about what this means for the internet. And that's what I hear a lot of in the U.S. Um, Facebook, actually, circulated this quote from Tim Berners-Lee, who's sort of the inventor of the World Wide Web, saying that the law could make the internet unworkable and it risks breaching a fundamental principle of the web by requiring payment for linking between certain content online. This is the argument that the internet is supposed to just be free and you can go from one place to another. You don't buy this. I don't buy this. And my general response to that is like, what what planet have you been living on for the past 10 years? This is not the internet of 20 years ago. Um, This is not even the internet of 10 years ago. Facebook and Google themselves have massively deformed the way the internet works. How does the average person use the internet now? They go to one of their infinitely refreshing feeds and they sit there and they read it and they scroll through and they click on links and go out to one site. They come back, ads are being fired at them constantly. And that's just, that's literally what the internet is now. So I, I just found it kind of ironic that the the companies that have so dominated the internet over the past decade who have come to control it are now talking about the halcyon days of, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and his vision. Um, That I found (laughs) very hard to swallow. It also seems like it doesn't move the ball forward in terms of keeping journalism economically viable. Well, and this this is what I think is the most compelling argument against the code, and one that kind of sits in the background of a lot of the debate, which is that as much as this is framed as publishers and a sovereign state or whatever standing up to big tech, it is also in many ways acceding to their their terms and folding to their view of how the internet should be. Uh, So in many ways, it's like saying, 
look, the way that you guys won, the way that you guys are on the internet is the other way the internet should operate, uh, but we just want a slice of that pie. So the question is, what does that look like in terms of the longevity? If Facebook and Google continue sucking the internet into themselves and becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and occupying all different facets of online life, where does journalism live there? To the people that say this is really just putting a Band-Aid on the, the giant wound that is the international news media, I think that's probably fair. You write a newsletter about technology, and you wrote this sentence that really stuck with me, and I'm going to quote it because this is a podcast and we can. Sure. The internet was fucked to pieces long before Australia started poking at it on behalf of its media companies. Are we just broken here? Is there a way to get to a good internet, or are we stuck with what we have? I do think there is... A bit of hope. I do write a, a newsletter periodically. A lot of people are, are migrating to sort of newsletter platforms, a lot of creators. Uh, you know, that presents all sorts of issues, some might argue, but also it does seem a little bit hopeful in the sense that there, there is an audience out there that wants to do something that every, everyone was doing 20 years ago, which was find something you like and then just read updates from that thing. It sounds like such a beautiful, clear vision, but it's not one that we've been presented for a while. You know, it's find things you like, like them on Facebook, and then Facebook will give you an array of content it thinks that you're going to like, and then wrap it up in ads and things like that. To me, it's, there's, there's definitely hope there, that there's cut through, there's audiences there who want to get news and want to get opinion and writing and all sorts of things out of the silos created by big tech. It feels to me like there are a couple of different ways to read the compromised state where things are resting now. Number one is maybe that the Australian government or Australian news media have gotten something. They've gotten some money for their companies and organizations. The other way you could potentially read it is that the platforms, Facebook and Google, have realized that maybe more muscular international regulation might be coming and they would like this to go away as quickly and quietly as possible so that they could avoid that in the EU, in the US, in Canada. Do you think the companies have gotten away from the specter of regulation by cutting these deals or does it still hang out there? The the big argument, I guess, happening within Australia right now about the code is, would these deals have happened if not for the code? If the code wasn't the, the looming specter, would Facebook and Google have struck these deals with Australian publishers? Probably not. I don't think they would have happened. They wouldn't have happened to this scale. And if I were an international regulator looking at this situation, as there are many, and there, a lot of them have explicitly flagged. I know Canada were just talking about how they were looking at the Australian model as a possible means of regulation. Um, even on the base level of they made a threat and the publishers got money, it looks pretty enticing, I would imagine. James Hennessy, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. James Hennessy is the editor of Business Insider Australia. His newsletter is called The Terminal. All right, that's it for us today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and edited by Alison Benedict and Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. 
And I want to recommend that you go back and listen to Wednesday's episode of What Next. It is a difficult and gripping conversation about sexual assault in the Marine Corps. All right, Mary Harris will be back on Monday. Have a good weekend. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.